Um, and as was said earlier, I'm a pastor at Parkside Church in Bainbridge. So I'm bringing greetings from the brothers and sisters there. I got to meet Pastor Steve at least over FaceTime. Uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. I got to meet his little puppy too. Uh, very cute. Uh, Maybe want to get a puppy for all my little kids, but you know, four is enough. We don't need a fifth. Um, well, in, in preparation for the sermon today, let me just read for us Romans 8. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 26. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. Romans 8. Verse 26, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Uh, this is what Paul writes. He says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you haven't left us to our own devices to try and figure out who you are, but you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. And we thank you not only that you've given us the scriptures, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit, who takes these very words and makes them alive. So we ask that your spirit would uh, take these words and that, and that he would plant these words deep in our souls, Lord, so that we might see Jesus that we might see what he's done for us, and Lord, we might rest in what he's done for us. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, the uh, unofficial motto of the U.S. Coast Guard is, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's uh, a very uh, noble motto. It speaks of servicemen and women's willingness to go into the face of danger to save those uh, who are at risk. But it's also a motto of deep uncertainty, because what it enshrines is this thought that as these uh, Coast Guard's men and women go out, that the waves that they face, that the, the wreckage that they face, that the wind that they face, that all that might overcome them. Yes, they have to go out, but there can be no ultimate security that they're going to survive. And I wonder if that sense of uncertainty, as we think about uncertainty, is relevant for you this morning if you're a believer. 
So in a very real sense, God has called you to go out. He has called you to leave the life you once lived, to follow Jesus. You're on a journey to heaven, but as you've discovered, perhaps especially in these last six or seven months, you've discovered that there are a lot of forces that are arrayed against you. You find that there's opposition from friends and family members, even from uh, employers. You find that you face accusation, perhaps from people who live in the neighborhood, people uh, in, in, in your workplace, or even Satan, your own heart. You find that there's all these forces that are threatening to separate you from the love of God. And if you're honest, sometimes when you're lying with your head on the pillow at night, and no one else knows your thoughts but God, you wonder, am I going to make it? I know I've been called out, but I feel these forces against me. Am I going to make it? Well, thankfully, what we have is not just a motto from the Coast Guard, but what we have is Romans 8, which enshrines not uncertainty, but certainty. Paul is writing to believers in Rome who are no doubt suffering persecution. They're suffering hardship, just like you and I face suffering and hardship. And he writes to them to say, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that your eternal destiny is secure, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And so my hope this morning is that as we look at Romans 8, 31 through 39, that if you're a believer here, you might find that your faith and your confidence in your ultimate well-being, the fact that you're going to make it one day to heaven, is, is buoyed, that it's strengthened. And if you're not a believer, you came with a friend, that maybe in a, in a world that, that offers very few certainties, that you'll consider the claims of Jesus and say, I want that security that is offered in the person and work of Christ. So we'll consider this passage just under three headings. I like how Steve already put it in the bulletin, so you don't have to write it down. Um, I guess you've got to come up with the words, though. Um, so, so you can do it right in the first sentence of the sermon here. So here's our three points. God's favor overpowers opposition. God's verdict overrules accusation. And God's love overcomes separation. So God's favor overpowers opposition. His verdict overrules accusation. And his love overcomes separation. First, God's favor overpowers opposition. Paul writes this in verses 31 through 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And we're going to consider this first point under two subheadings. The first subheading is the reality of opposition, and the second one is the futility of opposition. First, the reality of opposition. When a rhetorical question is asked, a funny thing can happen. The person that you are asking the rhetorical question to can fail to recognize that your question is rhetorical and can actually answer you. So perhaps if you're a teacher, you experience this all the time. Or uh, you know, if you have kids, maybe it's, it's one of these, these terrible days that happens, especially during a pandemic, and you're frustrated and, 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 and you ask your kids, who do you think I am? Do you think I exist to do your laundry, take you to school, drive you to all your errands, and clean up after you? And your kid goes, yeah, I think that. That's what I think. <laughs> Typically doesn't go real well for the kid afterwards. <laughs> but, but imagine for a second if we didn't recognize that Paul was asking a rhetorical question here in the end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, actually a lot can be against us. We just talked earlier about the persecuted church, how there are laws in parts of the world that if you conform, to, if you become a Christian, you can actually be killed. It's illegal to become a Christian. That seems like it's against Christianity. Or perhaps maybe closer to home here in the United States, you have a boss who doesn't like the fact that you're a believer. 
he or she doesn't like the fact that you bring integrity and honesty to the workplace, so that boss has ostracized you from the positions of power in your company. That seems like opposition. Or how about if you look within your own heart and you think about your depression, you think about your OCD, you think about the sin that you continue to struggle with and you go, this certainly feels like opposition to me following Jesus Christ, Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? A lot can be against him, Paul. And actually, when we start to think about the opposition, when we, when we, when we uh, process it, it can cause us to be plagued with doubt and fear, can't it? I mean, when, when you and I consider the, perhaps the direction of our country in the last 20 years, and we just think about the forces that are getting stronger and stronger that are against Christianity, we start to get worried, don't we? We worry about our own security. We worry about our kids' security, our grandkids. We go, how are they going to make it? When we look in our hearts and we, and we see the things that we wrestle with, we, we, we wonder to ourselves, we say, Man, this, this feels really strong. Am I going to make it out through? Am I actually going to make it to eternity? Or are these things going to derail me along the way? You see, it's important for us to, to recognize that there is opposition in the Christian life. Sometimes uh, we're surprised by the fact when we face opposition, but the Bible is very clear that you and I are going to face opposition in the Christian life. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and these things cause us real pain in our lives. The nice thing about Christianity is it doesn't call you to put on rose-colored glasses and pretend that everything's okay, but it allows you to look square in the face those things that oppose you and say, yes, these things are causing real pain, they're causing real suffering, and there are actually threats that are there that, that are going to uh, at least present the prospect of undoing you. So first, there's a reality of opposition. It's real. But secondly, the, this opposition that you and I face is ultimately futile. You see, when Paul asks this question, it is a rhetorical question. It's not a literal question. So what he's doing is he's trying to lift the, the, the reader's gaze beyond their circumstances onto the God who controls their destiny. You could actually translate verse 31b this way. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Since God is for us, who can be against us. And what Paul's doing here is he's building on the promises that he has, he has shown uh, to the believers in verses 28 through 30, and that's why I read it for us. What he has said there is he has said, for the Christian, God is in absolute control of your destiny. He's actually gone before you were even born to God's control of your destiny. He, he said, before you were born, God foreknew you, and he predestined you so that he could call you, so that he could justify you, so that, the next, so that one day he can glorify you. He's saying he has absolute control over your destiny. He has such control over your destiny that verse 28, that we're probably all familiar with, he can say that all things work for your ultimate good. Okay, not your temporal good, not your comfort, not your ease, not even, not even uh, so that you enjoy every aspect of life, but your ultimate good. Every single thing that happens to you works for your ultimate good, for your transformation into the image of Christ. And this extent of his control over your life extends even to the forces that are arrayed against you. Since God is all-powerful and in Christ he is for you, what Paul is saying here is he's saying that even the bad things that bad people maliciously do against you, God can use that for your ultimate good because he is in all control of everything. Now, how does this work? Well, let's go back to the example of your boss, right? Your boss doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian and has ostracized you. It's devastating, 
right? You've worked so long for this career, and now your boss has said, hey, I'm gonna put you in the corner, be quiet, I don't want you actually in the, in the power of, uh, of the company. How can God use that for your good? Well, he can use that to actually start to refine your motives for working. Because in the devastation of, uh, of your scenario, as you start to process it, as you start to pray through it, as you start to uh, talk to others about it, you recognize that you actually need a whole new reason for going to work in the morning. Because before, you had gone to work Monday through Friday to try and advance yourself, to try and climb the corporate ladder, but all of a sudden, when advancement is shut off from you, you realize oh, that's not going to work anymore, I need a new motive. So you start to go, you know what, I'm going to try and actually serve others at work, including my boss, who dislikes me. So you wake up with a new motive, you go to work Monday through Friday trying to serve others, and over the course of time, what you find is that your heart actually starts to change, and you actually start to love your coworkers, and you even love the boss who's stiff arming you. And what's more, your coworkers look at you and they go, what is up with him? What is up with her? We see the ways that your boss is, is mistreating you, and we see the ways that you are gracious in response. Now what has happened? God has used a bad thing to actually transform you more into the image of Christ, and it's beautiful. Your boss meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Or if we zoom out and we look at a, a macro example, think of, uh, a, 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 on the world scale, think about China, okay? 1950s, the, the, the communist government comes in under Mao, and they kick out all the missionaries, the Western missionaries, and they crack down on the church, right? Uh, if you're writing a magazine about Christianity, you go, this is bad news for the church, right? What's going to happen to Christianity in China? Well, what has happened? God has actually used that persecution to refine the church and sharpen it such that now, as of 2010, there are 75 million evangelical Christians in China. And what's more, because the communist government has stamped out religion, all the people in China now have a hole in their heart going, I have something in me that's missing, and the evangelical Christians have an answer in the good news. You see, Mao and the communist government meant it for evil. They're trying to shut down God, but God meant it for good in order to advance the kingdom in China. You see, this is what he does. God is so powerful that he can use the forces arrayed against him. He can almost flip them back on themselves and use it to advance his purposes. So what that means for you and I is that the forces that are arrayed against you, even this week, the people, the circumstances, uh, the, 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 the environment, that those things that are maliciously against you, God can even use those for your ultimate good. You see, God is undefeatable. You cannot defeat God. He will ultimately use all things for your good. Now, one more thought before we move on. You may be sitting here going like, okay, if God's all-powerful, Dan, and he's able to use these forces and redirect them for my good, why doesn't he just use his power to remove the hardship in my life? Why doesn't he just take it away? Why does he have to repurpose it? Um, and, and if you find yourself in, in that boat, I do my, myself at times, then look, look at verse 32. This is a real help to us on how we interpret that. This is what Paul writes. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, we might never know why God has allowed something really painful into our lives. We might never know why he doesn't remove that painful thorn in your flesh that you have cried out to him again and again and again. Could you please take this, this thorn away from you, this circumstance, this person, this whatever. But what we do know is that, is that God has given you his most precious, that which was most precious to, to him, his very son. And if he's given us 
his son. He's not going to withhold anything from you that might be for your ultimate good. You see, we have to view our circumstances through the cross. When we face hardship, Satan comes to us and he says, God is malicious. He's not good. He doesn't really love you. But the cross tells us once and for all, yes, he does love you. And that means if he's all-powerful and all-loving, that if there were another set of circumstances that were ultimately better for you for your transformation into the image of Christ, those would be your reality. Tim Keller, the author, writes this. He says, God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Let me say that again. God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. We might not know why, but we have to trust his love beneath our circumstances because he is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? None of those forces will ultimately succeed. Well, that brings us to our second set of rhetorical questions, and these are found in verses 33 and 34. And this is uh, our second point, that God's verdict overrules accusation. So look with me at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. As we think about this point, we'll just use uh, three subheadings here, too. We're going to think about the prosecution, the defense, and the judge. We're going to start with the prosecution. And we'll see right away in these verses that Paul switches to legal language. Okay? You find that he starts to talk about charges, about justification, about words like condemnation. So if the first couple of verses had to do with opposition that you and I face, this, these second set of verses have to do with a specific kind of opposition, namely accusation. Okay? Here, here's the picture. The picture is that of a courtroom. Okay, so, so imagine a courtroom, hopefully you haven't been there lately, uh, but imagine, imagine a courtroom, okay, or one you've seen on TV, and believers, okay, you and I, we are the ones on trial, okay? And what Paul does initially is he says, there is a prosecutor in the room as you're on trial who's bringing charges against you. Now, as believers, I think you can probably understand this analogy, you can probably relate to it. Perhaps there's been somebody in your life who has brought charges against you and has condemned you as a result of what uh, they say you did. Or perhaps more subtly, think about what happens in your own heart. You have a, an enemy, Satan, who loves to remind you of the wrong things that you've done and the right things that you failed to do. In fact, your own heart, 1 John tells us, condemns you. And when we, when we face opposition of the first time, when it's external to us, right, it's, it, it, it's, easy to, it's easier to get through it because we can say, okay, I only have 70 or 80 years on this planet. I just have to endure it. And then when I get to eternity, it'll all be gone. It'll all be worth it. I'll have endured the, the, the opposition and I'll get to enjoy what God has for me. But accusation is different, isn't it? Because it calls into question whether or not you and I are ever going to make it to eternity. Because those questions that come up in your heart and my heart, they actually are suggesting are you going to make it into heaven? Or will your sins find you out? Will your sins actually be revealed on the last day? And will you be justly condemned for them so that you can't ever get to heaven in the first place? So we wonder, don't we, in our hearts, when our consciences, when ourselves, when the evil one condemns us, am I going to make it? I've been called out, but am I going to make it through? Well, thankfully, Paul has an answer to this, too. It's the defense 
is verse 34. This is what he says. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who, who died. So again, we're back in the courtroom, right? You and I are on trial. There's a prosecutor who's bringing charges against us. You haven't done this. You have done this. And Paul introduces a defense. But his defense is really different than what you and I might normally expect. Because if you ever watched a, a courtroom drama, what does the, the defense attorney do? The defense attorney tries to make the charges not stick, right? So, he, so, so the defense attorney comes along and he says, well, uh, my, my defendant, he didn't actually do that. Or if you look at her character, that she, she's, she's above reproach. She would never do that. And incidentally, isn't that what you and I try to do when Satan tempts us to despair as we sin? Don't we try the same defense mechanism by saying, well, I'm not really that bad. And if you look at the balance of my life, I'm, I'm pretty good. But that never works, does it? Why not? Well, because when we try to push away the charges that are against us, we fail to acknowledge that the inherent truth that's in them, that we have sinned, that we have failed to do the things that God has asked us to do, that we have actually sinned blatantly in different ways against him. But that's not Paul's defense. Look at what he says. He says it's, he says it's really in a funny way, right? His defense is this. Jesus Christ is the one who died. What's he saying? He said, listen, the accusation is actually true. My defendant actually did that. My defendant actually failed to do that. And they actually deserve the condemnation that you are suggesting they deserve. But Jesus Christ is the one who died. Jesus Christ was punished for that very offense. He bore the condemnation that my defendant deserves, and therefore there is no condemnation left for him or for her. We know in our legal system, right, that you cannot punish the same crime twice, right? You cannot get sent to jail twice for the same crime. Why not? Because to do that would be unjust. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, God cannot punish the same sin twice. If he has, if you are in Christ and he has already punished Jesus for it, if he were to then punish you for it, God would be unjust because that would be punishing the same offense twice. So Paul's defense here is, is listen, not that you are innocent, that I am innocent. No, it's that you're guilty, but somebody's been punished in your place. And if that weren't enough, he goes on to mention that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. I grew up kind of in the, um, the OJ days, you know, with the white Bronco. Um, and, and, and I thought of, you know, you thought of Johnny Cochran as like the, the super defense attorney, right? But this is even better, right? Look at what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus Christ is your defense attorney. And he stands right next to God the Father in heaven so that when Satan brings accusations against you to God and says, he did this, she failed to do this, Jesus is right there to say, yes, he did, yes, she did. But I was already punished for that. I've taken the condemnation. There is no penalty left. And here's the wonder. Jesus has been raised to live forever. There will never be a day when Jesus will not be at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. We sang that, right? I know that while in heaven he stands, and he's going to stand there forever, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Why? Because he is always there to plead his love, his death, and his resurrection for you. And that is good news. That is the only defense that actually works 
to quiet our hearts when we're condemned because it's the only one that's true. So we have an accusation, we have a prosecutor, we have a defense, and then we have a judge. Okay? Back to the courtroom analogy, only one person left, the judge, God himself. And ultimately, his opinion is the only one that matters. And what does Paul say his opinion is? It's right there in verse 33. He says it in two different ways. We are God's elect, and he is the one who justifies. Justify, that's a big church word. Justification, that's the noun. It simply means the opposite of condemnation. It's to be declared righteous. So the judge comes into the courtroom after the closing arguments have been made. And what the judge says, this is what Paul says, he says, I've heard the arguments, I've heard the condemnation, but here's my verdict, righteous. Not on the basis of the defendant's behavior, but actually on the, on the, on the basis of Jesus' behavior, his, his active righteousness, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. And here's the thing, guys. God's courtroom is the highest courtroom in the universe. There's been a lot of talk of the Supreme Court lately, right? Why are we so focused on the Supreme Court? Well, because it's the highest court in the land, and if the Supreme Court rules something, there is nothing higher to which anyone can appeal. What the Supreme Court says goes. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, in God's courtroom, the verdict has already come in. There is nothing to which uh, Satan or your own conscience or anything can appeal above it because the verdict that God has issued, righteous for those who trust Christ, it's fine. Now, incidentally, this might be a word to some of us. Uh, you, you might be, be someone who says, hey, hey, I believe that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever heard that? I believe that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Perhaps you're someone who has a very sensitive conscience. But what I want to show you here is that what you're doing when you say, I believe that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, it sounds really humble. But what you're really doing is you're elevating your own personal view of things or your conscience above what God has said. It's not actually, it's not actually humble, it's proud. You're failing to subject, you're failing to put yourself underneath the ultimate final authority of God's throne. And you're saying, I know you've forgiven me, but I don't forgive myself. No, no. You are not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. He's the one who said you're forgiven. And we need to let that actually bleed down into our experience of grace. Because once we understand that he is the highest verdict, he is the highest authority, and his verdict goes, then we can say with Paul, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against me? Who is left to condemn? The highest court in all the universe has already ruled there are no appeals left, and that is final. So Paul can say with confidence, he can say, listen, all these accusations come, but God's verdict, his verdict that has already happened in Jesus, it overrules them all, and it gives peace to our souls. So God's favor overpowers opposition, his verdict overrules accusation, and finally, God's love overcomes threats of separation. If you look with me at verse 35, Paul writes this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We're going to consider these in the following verses just under uh, two subheadings, divisive forces and the binding force. 
I heard earlier that I have four kids. Uh, I, I was saying earlier that when we were shocked that the fourth was a boy, we thought, you know, we'll just make girls. That's what we want them to do. Um, but if you have kids and you have grandkids, uh, you might have seen one of their toys, uh, magnetiles. Anybody heard of magnetiles? You seen those? Okay, so if you haven't seen them, they're just geometric shapes that have magnets built in. You can build houses and stuff. And, and kids like them. More generally, like, I like them. So like, I'll be like, no, 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 Sophie, I don't want to play with this, you know? And I'll build a tower for myself. But if you ever play with kids' toys with magnets, you understand the principle, right? There, 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 there are magnets in the toys that hold them together. And if you exert a strong enough force, you can pull those magnets apart. And what Paul's saying here is actually something similar. He's saying there's this force that holds Christians together. Uh, one way of talking about Christians is saying that, that you are in Christ, okay? That, that there's a bond of love between Jesus and the Christian. But there are all sorts of threats to that bond, aren't there? There are all sorts of threats that threaten to pull you apart from God. Paul just lists a number of them here in verse 35. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution. So what's he talking about? He's talking about hardships, uh, famine, nakedness, so when we lack material goods, when we wonder uh, where our next paycheck is going to come from, it's a threat to the bond of love because we, we wonder, God, am I going to have enough? Do you love me enough to give me uh, a check this week so I can make it through? Danger or sword, when, when we face the reality of death, it's, a, it's another threat to the bond going, is, it, is your love strong enough to bring me through death? And again, when we face these things, if, if we're honest, I think uh, a certain question always comes into our, our lives. When hardship comes, what's the question that comes? God, do you really love me? Do you really love me? And, and, and if you do, how come you've allowed this into my life? And when we face that question, what we're really interacting with is an ancient lie that Satan once told Eve a long time ago in the garden. And the lie is this, that God isn't actually good, but he's malicious. That when I face hardship, it's just a sign that God doesn't really love me, but he's out to get me. Uh, to quote my, my daughter's uh, storybook Bible, Sally Lowe-Jones, she says this, uh, On the day that Satan lied to Eve, a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. That is the divisive force, the thing that threatens to pull me apart whenever I face hardship, that God doesn't love me. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there either. He says, listen, I have to tell you something about that lie. And, and immediately after that, he quotes Psalm 44. We read it earlier. It's, it's, it's a kind of a downer psalm, isn't it? Um, you read it, you go like, whoa, this is in the Bible? Like, I thought this was supposed to be like positive encouraging, you know? Um, <laughs> But why is that in there? It seems sort of like a weird, a weird phrase. Well, well, well here's, here's why it's in there. Because what Paul is doing here is he's trying to remind his readers that just because you are part of God's elect, that just because you are part of God's people, doesn't mean that you're immune to suffer. He points them backwards to God's people's experience in Psalm 44, where they were not living sinfully, but they were living righteously, and yet they faced suffering. So, to, so as to say to the current believers, hey, listen, suffering is not a sign that God doesn't love you. Suffering is not a sign that he's being malicious. This has always been the experience of God's people. To suffer is actually part of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, he, he builds on this argument in, in other places in, this, uh, in this, this last little section. We read 2 Corinthians 11 on purpose because 
you'll notice that the words that he used in 2 Corinthians 11 are actually the same words that he uses, many of the same words, here in Romans 8. So he uses words like tribulation and distress and persecution. So how can Paul so confidently assert that all of these forces that threaten to break the bond of love will not do so? Because he's actually been through them. Paul has experienced many of these threats himself. And he's found, no, that didn't break my, my love, his love for me. He brought me through all these things, and he's going to bring you through them all through as well. And then in verse 37, look at what, what he says. He says, through him who loved us, which is a reference to Jesus' act of love on the cross. So facing suffering meant, means that God doesn't love us. What do we do with Jesus, right? No one here would say that God doesn't love, the Father doesn't love his son, Jesus. But yet, if you look at Jesus' life, he was a man of sorrows. He was rejected. He was despised by men. His life was a life of suffering. If you were just to look at his life, you would say, you must be God forsaken because of how your life is going. But we know that nothing could be further from the truth. So what he's saying, he's saying, listen, suffering is not a mark that God doesn't love you. Though Satan will point at your suffering and say to you, because you're suffering, it means God doesn't care. Paul says, no, that cannot be true. If you look at Jesus, if you look at me, if you look at the Old Testament, suffering is a part of the life of a believer. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, listen, I am sure that none of these things will separate you from his love. In fact, verse 37, we are more than conquerors. Well, how can Paul write that? They haven't gone through this. They haven't gotten to the other side of it yet. How can, how can he say you're more than conquerors? Well, I think it's actually based in verse 30. Look with me at verse 30. We, we talked about this earlier. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So before your life, he chose you. Then he called you. Then he justified you. And look at the tense of, of the last verse in, 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 uh, in verse 30 there. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Have they been glorified yet? No. That, that is something to come in the future. But Paul is so certain that what God started in the life of the believer, he is going to bring to completion. He's so confident that that's going to happen that he actually can write about it as though it already happened by writing about it in the past tense. That is how sure he is that what God has started in the lives of genuine believers, he will bring to completion, that he will safely take them through the challenges of this life and bring them into eternity. So what he's saying, he's saying, listen, for all these forces that threaten to pull you away from Christ, there is one force that is stronger than all of those. It is the binding force of God's love for you in Jesus, okay? It's not your love of him that brings you through. It's, your, it's his love of you. It's not your faith that brings you through. It's his love of you. And because he is God, he is able to see that what he started in you from before you were ever born, he will bring it to completion to take you to be with him in eternity. You can actually take it to the bank. And don't we need to hear that? Because if we're honest, right? Where have we been looking when we have started to doubt whether or not we're going to make it? Well, we've been looking at our circumstances, right, which look bad and look daunting. Or we've been looking at ourselves. And we look at ourselves and we go, I'm pretty frail. I'm pretty weak. I'm pretty broken. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And Paul says, stop looking at your circumstances. Stop looking inside yourself. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done for you. Fix your eyes on him for what he has started. He will complete. And that is what gives us confidence that we are going to make it to the end. Charles Spurgeon 
um, in one of his uh, devotionals, uh, writes this, and, and I'll, I'll quote it at length because I think it's good. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus, but Satan's work is just the opposite for, of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon, you have no faith, you do not repent enough, you will never be able to continue to the end, you have not the joy of his children, you have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand, which thou art grasping Christ, as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. Amen. Isn't that good? Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Answer, no one. Because it's his hold of you, not your hold of him, that will save. So there we have it. We have God's favor overpowers opposition. His verdict overrules accusation. And his love overcomes separation. We started with uh, the Coast Guard. We'll finish with the military in general. Uh, you know, the, the military has this little phrase, uh, and it's in that Mel Gibson movie, um, leave no man behind, right? Again, it's, it's, it's a wonderful sentiment that if you go fight for the United States, that they are going to ensure, whether dead or alive, they will bring your body back to be with, with your loved ones. Again, great sentiment, great, great, full of courage. But we know it, it's the military in the United States not actually powerful enough to make it happen, right? You can still drive down streets and see the MIA flag flying on flagpoles. Why? Because the military is not strong enough to ensure that every man is not left behind. But God's not the military. God is not the United States. He is actually stronger. And he is able to say, there will be no man or woman left behind. There's not going to be a missing chair at that final feast in heaven. What God has started in the lives of Christians, he will make sure that each and every one goes to completion and enjoys eternity with him. Because he's God and he controls all things. And because of that, we can be sure, we can just read the end here, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Oh, Father, if we're honest here this morning, we know that there are all sorts of threats to our continuation in the Christian life people, circumstances that oppose us, our consciences, the evil one who accuses us, threats to, uh, threaten to separate us from it. But we thank you, Lord, as Spurgeon has said, that it's not us that maintains the bond of love with you, but it's you. It's not our hold of you that saves, but your hold of us. So I pray, Lord, that even as we consider these words in the balance of today and in the week ahead, that 
as we wrestle with the implications of elections and coronavirus and unemployment and all the challenges that we face. Lord, that you would remind us of your great love, of your great love that loved us before we were even born, 